The Park Hotel in Melbourne briefly became an international name last week after it was dropped into the spotlight by the world's number one men's tennis player. Novak Djokovic was detained there after he was ruled out, then in, then out again from a record 21st major title at the Australian Open. The reigning Australian Open champion Novak Djokovic faces deportation from Australia after flying into Melbourne to defend his Australian Open tennis title. The world number one, who has never declared his vaccination status, was granted a medical exemption to play. But the hotel, the world discovered, had its own checkered history. On a separate floor are some 30 men who've been trapped in Australia's immigration detention system for years. Today, we're looking at the stories of two men at the Park Hotel. One who was ejected from Australia, another who's still there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Jamal and I'm 38 year old here in Australia. It's almost nine years we are here in Australia. Jamal has been in immigration detention for nine years when he fled from Afghanistan. He spent the majority of that time on a remote island called Nauru, which has hosted many of Australia's offshore migrant detainees. Nauru is the tiny Pacific country where Australia sends people seeking asylum on its shores. The island, says Amnesty International, is an open-air prison. Australia's policy change in 2013 was in response to almost daily boats and about 50,000 people described as unauthorised arriving. And for the last several months, he's been at the Park Hotel. He gave us a tour of his room, a similar one to the one that housed Djokovic for a few days. He's talking here with one of our senior producers, Alexandra Locke. It's really restricted, like totally, you know, you see the glasses, it's totally like, totally locked. You can't like have a fresh air from here. Where do you go for, is, is there fresh air or no fresh air? You want a fresh air, you have, like it's a smoking area, you have to go there. Yeah, just like something for people to stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people, they are sitting there, they are smoking, so you have to feel fresh. Uh, so no, yeah, it's just cigarette smoke now. Yeah, it's still not healthy. Yeah. Like it's not a healthy. We talked to Jamal on Monday, the day after Djokovic was deported from Australia. Tell us about the Djokovic saga from your point of view. How did you hear about it? Were you able to see any of the protests that were happening outside? Yeah, Djokovic, when we were in the hotel, we didn't know much about, like, he was being brought here. But then we see a lot of journalists, like, the flashing lights on uh, Park Hotel. And many journalists, they will start asking about Djokovic. And we were really shocked that, wow, Djokovic is here. And now, like, people are coming here, they're asking about, like, how we are feeling. Our, like, uh, torture here for how long we have been suffering here. So what is the Park Hotel like? How would you describe it? Park Hotel, it's like, uh, it's totally locked up. Most of people, they are like depressed, anxiety, like they have been suffering for nine years. And there is no life, like freedom of life. It's very hard to get like the fresh air here, like the food, it's really not the food which we want. 
like recently some of the friends they just find like markets or some kind of moldy kind of things in there so we just asked the immigration before we requested we don't like the foods uh, which you guys are providing us but nothing is happening still now oh wow so remind us why are you in the hotel in the first place for those of us who don't know how did you get there so it's almost like more than two years I'm here since brought to Australia. I was brought here because I got a bone like skin bones. So that's why they brought us here to uh, Australia for the treatment. So you got skin burns because you had been on Nauru for years without your consent. So can you tell me more about that? What happened? What did you decide to do? Yeah, in Nauru, like, uh, when I was there, like, I was there, like, left alone. Like, I just feel really loneliness. And I was feeling dark. There was, totally was dark. Even I just went to the mental health plenty times. And they know, like, my situation. But, yeah, I was not getting appropriate, like, uh, mental health treatment there. So, yeah, I just, uh, you know, burned myself. I didn't know, like, I was not trying to do that, but, you know, mentally I get too much down so that uh, I did that. I'm sorry to hear that. What was that treatment like? Do you remember? Do you recall what that treatment was like? It's a third-degree bone, so I was just there in the hospital, almost like 14 days in the hospital. I just remember it's all nightmares I was having, and that's it. It's really like a soul-taking what I did. This is Jamal's lawyer, Alison Battison. She represents five people detained at the Park Hotel and told us what happened. Jamal could no longer take the pressures of not knowing where he would be permanently resettled and therefore whether he could bring his family or not. And unfortunately, he set himself on fire. He was then brought to Australia for medical treatment, having suffered burns to over 51% of his body. And he's been detained in Australia ever since, and that was over two years ago. I started looking at Jamal's case, and the first photo I came to was of his, his burns, you know, skin just hanging off him, burnt off him. And then I thought, well, what's his refugee claim? Jamal fled to Australia from Afghanistan, as we mentioned. He'd been working there for the US military. I was uh, working like almost like uh, 15 months with the U.S. Army as an interpreter. So I was training Afghans uh, there. So I just get you know, threatened by the uh, Taliban. So I couldn't stay there. So I just uh, escaped from there and seek asylum. Jamal fled to Malaysia, then Indonesia, then took a boat to try to reach Australia's Christmas Island. And he was processed on Nauru. But Australia has a zero-tolerance policy for asylum seekers who come by boat, even if their cases are valid. Here's General Angus Campbell, who commanded what's known as Operation Sovereign Borders. If you travel by boat without a visa, you will not make Australia home. The rules apply to everyone, families, children, unaccompanied children, educated and skilled. There are no exceptions. So on Nauru, Alison said, there was no option for resettlement. I had thought 
that in Australia's detention centres there was no longer anyone who'd assisted the Allies against the Taliban. And so I was just so incredibly shocked when I realised that was his protection claim that had been accepted by Nauru and that we were still detaining him. Which brings us back to the hotel and how it became a detention facility. We asked journalist Kate Walton, who writes about Australia for Al Jazeera, to tell us the story. The Park Hotel is in Melbourne. It was previously used as a quarantine facility for returning international travellers. And during the largest outbreak in Melbourne, was actually identified as the source of about 90% of cases that spread through Victoria during their worst outbreak period. Those outbreaks at the hotel had a major impact on the city of Melbourne because of the way that Australia had kept the coronavirus at bay. Australia took a really harsh approach to handling COVID. The approach that was preferred by both the federal government and the state and territory governments was a approach of COVID zero, where both were aiming to have as limited number of COVID cases in the community as possible and ideally zero cases. The cases previously, when there were simply one or two cases, they would lead to state and territory lockdowns when we were experiencing the Delta variant, for example. The most obvious uh, case of this was for Victoria, which is where Melbourne is located. They had six lockdowns over the last two years. And Melbourne ended up being the city that had the longest period of COVID lockdown in the entire world. But those harsh restrictions on COVID have now faded. And with Omicron, Australia is now facing its highest rate of cases of the entire pandemic, one of the highest infection rates in the world. So we've gone from really one extreme of COVID zero with very few cases in the community to the other end of the extreme. So this has been a massive lurch and a massive change for most people in Australia to experience. Towards the end of last year, one of those infected was Jamal. We got covered. We are almost like 20 people got covered. We are not safe here, like to bring us together here, but still we, we are here. So we got covered and I was uh, thinking that we're going to die here because uh, many people, I was really scared, like many people get die because of COVID. That was back in October. In December, there was another calamity. This is Jamal's lawyer again, Alison. The Park Hotel on the 23rd of December 2021 caught on fire. So at least two floors, as I understand it, suffered smoke and flame. Everyone shoved in together, you know, COVID people, non-COVID people. Some were kept in the basement. Jamal was kept in the basement. And you could imagine if you've already suffered burns to 51% of your body, you do not want to be in a basement when the building you're in is on fire. It was very distressing. But Alison says, despite the incidents, the Park Hotel was still not well known in Melbourne until the Australian Open. What's happening, everyone? The Australian Open 2022 is off and running. We saw the first day of action. And along with the Australian So the Park Hotel is hidden in plain sight. It's in Carlton. It's, you know, very close to the Melbourne downtown area. It's It has tinted out windows, quite heavily tinted, so people can't see in 
The hotel became a focus when Djokovic arrived in detention, after the first time Australia canceled his visa, over a failure to meet entry requirements. There were protests by fans and counter-protests. Here's Kate again, the journalist. He does have some quite passionate fans. On the other hand, particularly residents in Melbourne, have really, really suffered over the last two years during the very strict lockdowns. And many people don't like the idea of someone trying to game the system and enter as an unvaccinated person for their own purposes, essentially. So at the hotel, you had this mix of protesters, pro-Djokovic, anti-Djokovic, anti-vaxxers, and also protesters for the refugees. Jamal said he and the others would gather in rooms with a good view to watch from the windows. We just, when we just see them, we just feel a little bit like confidence and hope. We get hope from them, like when we see them. Like we just see that there are some people who are behind us. They are fighting for us. Even they are little, but still they are fighting for us. As the Djokovic detention saga was playing out, and the world watched the legal volleys of whether he would or wouldn't be allowed to play, Allison was watching it from the perspective of an immigration lawyer. The Djokovic case highlights for people like myself and my friends and clients in detention the massive wall that is in place to gaining their liberty. And in Australia, there is no right to liberty. We don't have a a bill of rights. We don't have a charter of rights. So our liberty can be taken away very easily in Australia. So in particular, if you're not an Australian citizen and you're seeking asylum, for example, it's very easy to end up in indefinite detention. Djokovic experienced it for about six days in total. About six days, obviously being far less than your average deportation case. That was partly because the head of the immigration ministry stepped in. That official statement has come out from Immigration Minister Alex Hawke, a decision some four days in the making. I have it here, let me read it to you. Today, I exercise my power under Section 133 C3 of the Migration Act to cancel the visa held by Mr Novak Djokovic on health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. And that all happened quickly. There was a rushed court action that was heard very quickly by the full Federal Court of Australia, which is just one below the the High Court of Australia, over the weekend, which for refugee advocates and lawyers like myself was quite pointed because I've certainly never had a full Federal Court sitting on a Sunday to hear a Liberty case, which is grating because Djokovic ultimately has somewhere to go. But what Allison also highlighted wasn't just the timeline, but again, who made the decision? This decision was made solely by the immigration minister, which Australian law empowers him to do. Alex Hawke could just as easily have let Djokovic in. What Djokovic then butted up against was the minister's godlike powers. And these are truly extraordinary. The minister's representative said, These are extremely broad powers, and they're broader even more. Whatever that means, it's you have a legal representative telling a court that basically the minister can do what he wants. That godlike powers reference that Alison made, she didn't originate the phrase. It was a previous immigration minister who coined it. 
The move was backed up by the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Rules are rules. And there are no special cases. Entry with a visa requires double vaccination or a medical exemption. I'm advised that such an exemption was not in place, and as a result, he is subject to the same rule as anyone else. And it's the point of view that many observers have taken away from the saga, what it says about who is or isn't above the law. So where did Djokovic fall? On one hand, yes, he got deported. The same outcome that any unvaccinated tourist who tried to enter Australia could have gotten. On the other hand, you might point out, once he was in that system, his journey through it was not the same as someone like Jamal. No maggots in his food, no shackles as he walked to the airplane. But Jamal's lawyer isn't making comparisons. She's asking a different question. The government says Djokovic broke Australian law. Seeking asylum, as Jamal did, is not illegal. The question about whether someone's above the law or not for uh, immigration law in, in Australia is interesting because our laws are so draconian. I would say, yes, the Djokovic saga shows that no one is above the law in Australia despite their resources. But is the law appropriate? And, and here the answer has to be no. And the stark examples of that are the people left sitting in the Park Hotel who have no right to any sort of permanent resettlement in Australia under Australian law after arriving in Australia, seeking asylum, being recognised as refugees. That cannot be right. The law cannot be right. The outcome, ultimately, is a life on hold. Jamal has applied for resettlement in the United States, but has yet to hear back. We reached out to the U.S. State Department for comment on his case. A spokesperson told us they couldn't comment on specific cases. They said they're coordinating with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to bring the resettlement of a number of eligible refugees from Australia to conclusion as soon as possible. I'm not sure if people truly understand the torture of not knowing when you can ever leave somewhere. I think unless you've experienced great uncertainty about an issue that is fundamental to your existence, you'll never know. Djokovic has somewhere to go to. As soon as his case was thrown out of the federal court, he he was basically on a plane back to Europe. Our guys just sit there day in, day out, Outside the hotel now, the cameras and the media are gone. I asked Jamal what it left him with. In Australia and online, there are a lot of people who are happy that Djokovic was deported. And they say that he deserved it and that the rule should apply to everyone. What was your reaction when you heard he was deported? To be honest, uh, like it's an Australian point of view, but us... We, we, are, we are fighting for our freedom, so we don't care, like, if Djokovic, like, he stay here or he's been deported. But we are suffering here for nine years. And if people just come and put their, them, themselves in our shoes, then they will know the freedom of life. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke. 
with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Tom Finton is our editor. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Mahdi Ali, Freya Cole, and Chris Sheridan. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>